In this special edition of the BHI podcast, Rich Lesser, the CEO of BCG, discusses the challenges posed by the coronavirus to the global economy with Philip Carlson Schlezak, Chief Economist of BCG and leader of the BCG Henderson Institute's Center for Macroeconomics. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm joined by Philip Carlson Schlezak. Uh, Philip is the um, Chief Economist of BCG. And it's a quite unique role. We only have one. And, and he is uniquely busy man right now talking to teams and client teams and CEOs all over the world about what's going on. And I thought many of you would value his perspective as well. I'm, I'm going to note the date. It's April 19th because this changes so often that whatever we talk about today could be different in weeks or months from now. And perhaps we'll do another one of these down the road. So, Philip... I, let me just one piece of background. How did you get to this particular role? It's a one of a kind role in BCG. You started in a different way in BCG. Just give a bit of context and then we'll dive into the crisis and what's going on. Thank you, Rich. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, yeah, so I have a history with BCG. I had spent uh, about eight years as a consultant, PL, principal, etc., and um, uh, I took a detour. I spent a couple of years as a Wall Street economist uh, with Sanford Bernstein where I covered um, the U.S. economy, the global economy for institutional investors globally. So publishing research on a, on a weekly basis and engaging with asset managers across the whole spectrum from you know, pension funds through mutual funds and hedge funds and helping them understand how both structural shifts and tactical changes are unfolding in the economy. And so, you know, I've kept in touch with BCG over the years, particularly with Martin and the BHI. And so the opportunity uh, arose and I was asked uh, if I might want to come back. And I'm very pleased to come back and be here. What I didn't anticipate, of course, is that I would be walking into a coronavirus mega crisis. And so I literally rejoined BCG two weeks before we went into lockdown. But that said, I'm, I'm very happy to be here. And, and obviously it's uh, twice in a generation type situation where economists are in very peak demand. And, and that's what we're going through right now. It's so interesting when I was talking to you at the end of last year about the possibility that you might rejoin. And we were talking about all the stuff that we could do and how valuable it would be. I don't think either one of us had in mind that we would be at this moment in time, you know, three, four months later. But actually right now, the ability to bring a macroeconomic perspective, I find in almost every one of the conversations I'm having with CEOs is, you know, one of the, there's a few questions. Normally health first, not surprisingly, but after health, what this means for the economy is so, so top of mind. So let, let's dive in. Um, yeah. Where do you think we are in the crisis? How bad is it? And in what ways do you think this crisis is different? Because if you're in my shoes, you know, there was the post 911com bubble. Then there was the great financial crisis in 2008-9. So how does this fit into that context? Yeah, you know, I think um, there, there are two dimensions or two questions that we all have to answer. Um, the first one is a question of intensity. So how deep is the fall? How fast is it? How brutal is that shock um, as it unfolds? And then separately, the second question that, that all leaders have to answer is, what do we believe about the uh, path and recovery and the shape of the shock? So as we come back to prior growth levels or not, as we recuperate old growth rates or not. And so those two are different. Now, I think on the first one, the intensity, 
you know, it's already clear that this is much more brutal than what was uh, 2008. So the fall is, is steeper, it's faster. The macro prints are more devastating in terms of unemployment. So this easily dwarfs the intensity of the 2008 shock. I'm, I think at this point, we're all confident in, in making that claim. I think where it gets tricky is the second dimension. What is the structural legacy of this? So uh, specifically what that means is, can economies climb back to their pre-shock trend path of growth? Yes or no. Um, and can they have the growth rates that they had pre-shock? Yes or no. And uh, that will vary uh, across a number of economies, of course. And, and there is a question of degree rather than kind, um, essentially where we have to be prepared at this point to think about damage that is structural and will persist in the economy. So what's unique here is that we are going to see a window of slower, maybe very slow capital stock growth. And that is what gives you a structural dimension that lasts, that sticks with you over time. In 2008, you got there because of a banking crisis. The banking crisis dried up the flow of credit to the real economy and you missed a whole window of capital stock growth on the economy supply side. That shifted you down in your growth path. You later recuperated your growth rate, but um, you know, your level was down and you never really got back to your old path. Now in coronavirus, you have a second way of getting there. Even without a banking crisis, the longer we are in lockdown, the more we are either delaying or canceling CapEx decisions. We're not making new CapEx plans. And if you aggregate all that up, you see the drag on capital stock growth in an economy like the US. And so there is a structural legacy the longer this lasts. But what I also would stress is that we don't know yet how bad this is and pessimism very easily gets hold of us. And so we also have a lot of policy efforts here to rein in the real economy liquidity problems that are unfolding. Literally hundreds of thousands of entities across the firm and household sector are in liquidity, sometimes capital or balance sheet problems. And so policy has a real role to limit that damage that then happens on the capital stock formation side. And so as all that help is unfolding, I think there's still some hope that um, effective policy measures are getting there and are limiting the structural damage that's, that's certainly unfolding um, as we speak in real time. So can I pick up on that last point? Um, I've read concerns that in, at least in some markets, I think including the U.S., the growth in unemployment to 22 million people in four weeks is a pace faster than the Great Depression had it. And there's concerns about, you know, is, are we heading into a Great Depression-like scenario? How, I'm sure you must get asked that in your various conversations. How, how do you talk about that level of depth of you know, a multi-year massive problem and whether we're on that track now. Yeah, um, you know, this comes up a lot. And, you know, the, the unemployment prints are truly frightening. Um, but the question is, is this sort of a passing resemblance to something like the Great Depression or is there a true causal equivalence or is there a true structural problem like in, in, in the Great Depression? So I think what we need to look at first is what really is a depression? And the answer is, a depression is a structural break of an economy, not just a tail risk that can play out in an economy. So when you think about what we had the last 30 years, we had a uh, beautiful window of low and stable inflation. And because of that low and, uh, low and stable inflation regime, 
we had low interest rates, we had long business cycles, and we had high valuations. So it's difficult to overstate the centrality and importance of the anchored low and stable inflation regime. Now, when people invoke a Great Depression, they may or may not realize what they're really arguing is a break of that good inflation regime. A depression is a deflationary structural problem where the price level collapses 20% or more. And that's what happened in the Great Depression. And I think it's a pretty bad analogy for what's going on today, or I think it's at least very implausible that this would repeat in that way. Why? If you, if you look at what got us into that place in the Great Depression, it was a massive policy failure in all dimensions. So you let thousands of banks go, go bust. You had the banking system go under. And then that's the monetary policy side. And then on the fiscal side, uh, politicians and policymakers stood by and watched the economy bleed out. Now, people often say the New Deal is what, what you know, fixed the Great Depression. Uh, it certainly contained it, but it was very late. It came in 1933 when FDR came into office. So it was way too late. It was way too little. And when they tried to dial it down, you immediately you know, uh, went into the next, next recession in the 30s. So um, if, that, if that really is supposed to be what's going on today, I couldn't disagree more. We have an emphatic uh, active policy response. Policymakers are throwing everything they got at the problem. And perhaps most importantly, they're gonna keep throwing things at the problem until something sticks. And that's the key differentiator to something like in the Great Depression where a policy era moves you from a bad crisis into a depression because they didn't try. Their mindsets was one of, uh, we don't actually understand the problem. And so we, we're just going to watch this. And today, I think, is diametrically opposed to that. Okay, so that's encouraging that <laughs> I'm sure for many of us, <laughs> frankly, it hasn't been my big concern, but it's very nice to hear that description. And that's good. Now, let me come to the corollary or the question that that raises. We're taking on massive debt on top of already having a high debt economy, we seem to be taking on much more, particularly in governments and fiscal, but many companies are going to have to add debt uh, that may not be relieved by government in order to come through this. And for sure, balance sheets, which were already strained a bit, corporate balance sheets, you know, had a higher part of the, the, the debt leverage cycle. Now you've added on top, I think, for many of them. So accepting that this won't be the kind of dramatic fiscal and, and uh, monetary errors that led to the Great Depression, how do you see this massive increase in debt playing through post okay. sort of the health crisis part of this? Yeah, no, I think, you know, the, the debt crisis fear is actually the polar opposite of the Great Depression fear. So the Great Depression, if we're in a anchored inflation regime today, the Great Depression is the deflationary, you know, worst case scenario to the downside. A debt crisis is an inflationary bust. So a debt crisis is always synonymous with a currency debasement and an inflation shift that is much, much higher structurally. So they're basically the polar opposites. And I think the fact that both of these, you know, massive um, negative scenarios are gaining currency now just speaks to the level of, of the intensity of the shock that is really putting fears into all of us. But just like the Great Depression, I think is very, very implausible. Um, a debt crisis, at least in the United States and other advanced economies, is, is very implausible also. Let's start with the US and, and, and why that, that, that is really not a convincing narrative. Um, you know, people often obsess with the level of debt relative to GDP. So it's essentially a levels argument. But if you look empirically at all debt crises that you can look at the last X decades, there is no good pattern there. So in other words, 
Um, debt crises happen at high levels of debt to GDP, and they happen at low levels of debt to GDP, and they don't happen at high levels of debt to GDP, and they do happen at low levels of debt to GDP. So it's something else, and that something else is really much more about very important macro conditions that prevail or they don't prevail in certain economies. And in the US and elsewhere, there are three or four that really matter. Um, the first one is, do you have an anchored inflation regime? And in the US, it is super anchored. If anything, it's skewed to the downside. It's not skewed to the upside, it's skewed to the downside. Um, the second one is, what is your risk rate correlation? So in, in, in finance terms, this is about negative bond equity correlation. When you have a shock to risk assets like equities, then bond prices go up and yields fall because there is a safe haven element to this. And that, that system is very, very powerfully anchored. As you saw it in this shock, negative bond equity correlation was, was at full display. And then uh, thirdly, you have the you know, US dollar regime, the reserve currency regime is fully, fully entrenched. Um, the rest of the world needs to hold US safe assets and so it's not really clear where else would you go. And then finally, the debt sustainability rather than levels is, is really the question or the difference between what is your nominal growth rate versus your nominal uh, interest rate. And just like for a firm, if your growth rate is higher than the nominal rate on your debt servicing, you have a lot of sustainability in debt burdens. So for a US economy, the idea of a debt crisis is, is, um, is, is extremely implausible. Are there going to be weaker economies around the world where that becomes a possibility? Absolutely. But um, in terms of the reserve currency anchor that the US provides, uh, which would be the real sort of global economy disaster if that broke, um, I don't think that even if you added another two trillion in debt, you've already added two, if you added another two, I don't think even then you're getting to a point where fixed income markets would reject U.S. sovereign debt issues. But could you come back to the other economies? Obviously, you can't go through every one here, but are there any principles that you would be thinking about in that context? Yeah, I think, you know, the same mechanisms that I outlined about what's the sustainability of the debt as opposed to the level of debt to GDP, they're applicable in any other economy. They're just not going to be as favorable as in an economy like the US or say Germany and a few other very strong and fiscally powerful uh, places. But whenever you have deficiencies there, whenever you have less of a, for example, your growth rate versus your interest rate, if that isn't as favorable, so basically interest rates are higher than your growth rate, that is a, a clear indication that sooner or later you're running into constraints of debt sustainability. And as you add so much debt and your debt servicing burden just keeps growing and growing, you know, that becomes a problem. And then if markets reject the debt issuance of any given country, you know, that's, that's a plausibility where, you know, there is no healthy fiscal policy and philosophy behind a government, then you move into trouble. Do we want to speculate what happens in, in Italy? Can Italy at this point, um, you know, still find a, an exit from the Eurozone? You know, these are really almost political questions more so than are markets going to reject it. I don't think the EU would let Italy crash out of the Euro over coronavirus. That'd be extremely surprising. But I think, you know, the same mechanisms of what drives debt sustainability they hold true across all economies. Got it. So can we talk about the reopening of the economies? You know, most of my conversations these days, whether I'm talking to CEOs or government officials, is all about reopening and how to get the economy restarted again, how to do it safely, 
and how to do it effectively because this this dramatic social distancing has had such a crashing of sort of the real economy overnight. How do you think about reopening the economy from sort of a macroeconomic perspective or the vantage point that you get to see? What, what's interesting here is there is no rule book. There is nobody who can tell you what's a good point for reopening an economy. We're all just inventing this in real time. But I think what, what has helped me um, think through this a little bit is to look at some empirical benchmarks. And what I find interesting is um, the decision in Germany to reopen at a caseload of new cases per day um, of 2,000 on a population of 80 million, right? So we're talking about a new caseload daily of about 25 cases per million of population. Um, is that the right level? Um, nobody knows, even exposed, we won't really know. Um, and, and in any case, there is no technocratic policy um, dimension to this. It's a political decision everywhere, including in the US, where it's a political decision. Do we want to risk a reopening? Is it going to be too soon? Is it going to be too late? Um, having said that, though, if you believe for a moment that, that uh, the German rate of new cases per million daily is a, is a decent benchmark, how far away are you from that kind of empirical benchmark in other economies, including the US? Um, in the US, you, you look at a daily new case load of, of something closer to 90 per million per day, so 90 new cases per million of population per day, or maybe it's 85 at this point, and you are nationally past an inflection point, so the curve of, of new infections is edging down. If you're willing to extrapolate that downtrend in the curve and see how long would it take before you hit the kind of you know, uh, German 25 new cases per million per day, I think that would probably get you into a um, still just maybe the first half of, of May, uh, maybe sort of edging into the second half of May. But I think that would be sort of a plausible type of trajectory. And that's how I think about the, the timeline dimension. Um, I suspect, though, um, you're also thinking about, Rich, um, the, the how do you organize the reopening, right? Yes. Yeah, so or, or, or what do you think? It, I mean, you're seeing all these data come in. And we see it in China, we see it around the world where people are reopening. What does that mean macroeconomically to have it, you know, to have a reopening? And how fast do you think we're going to see a bounce back in real activity? I can open a store, but it still does someone want to come into the store. I can offer new yeah. cars for sale. Does someone want to put down the money to buy a new car? I, I guess I wonder if you're seeing clues on that right now. You can't force uh, you can't force people to go back out and spend money and sit down in restaurants, even if you allow it today. And that's the ultimate limit on this. I mean, I think the the um, bounce back um, is, is going to be a function of how successfully do you reopen uh, economies. And um, I think ultimately it's just a function of two or three scenarios that could play out there. So in my mind, um, the most attractive one is do you reopen and have targeted quarantines as you have relapses into, into the disease? So in other words, is there an internal rate of learning of, of how to organize a lockdown that is less economically damaging, um, as opposed to just shutting down repeatedly in the same way? So you have waves of, of static lockdowns that have no internal rate of learning. Um, and so the targeted quarantine scenario comes down to a few enablers, a few factors that are, some of them are in the hands of governments and some aren't. But I think the, the big enablers are, um, do you have a testing regime 
that really allows you to be effective, uh, not just for the virus in terms of testing, but antibody testing. And if you have that in place and you're truly good at this, that will translate into a successful reopening and that will help the macroeconomic rebound in a, in a significant way. And the other one is all governments are going to be experimenting and innovating on adaptation policies. So how do we live with that virus? When we want to reopen, it's still going to be there. And there are going to be you know, uh, millions of, of variations, not millions, but hundreds of variations on the same question of how do you reconvene for central business activities. And um, going to be real-time learning and cross-sectional comparison between countries and what's the most effective in terms of facilitating uh, business activity. And, um, and, and so, you know, at this point, um, it's, it's a question almost outside of economics, how well will that be organized and how fast will individual economies be able to learn and, and therefore facilitate economic growth again? I agree with that. In fact, a lot of the discussions I'm in is so much of what we're doing right now is to avoid one scenario, which is not a V or a U or an L, but it's a W where we bring things down to, to keep people safe. We try to reopen back up, but we don't do it in the highest quality way. And this isn't a universal answer. You could be very effective in some parts of the world or a country and not in others. And the result of not doing it well is to have to bring it down again and then eventually open up another time. And I think that that W scenario, which is more related to health than economics, is still a very damaging thing from an economic point of view. And so, so much of what I believe and what I hear governments and CEOs discussing is whether we open this week or that week, of course, matters a lot because all of us want to get the economy going again. But what's the most important question is how do we do it in ways that we don't put ourselves in a position where we have to bring it back down in a broad way? It doesn't mean narrow quarantines in individual places. That's almost a given that, that it won't be perfect. But to have to do a broad uh, closure again would be extremely detrimental. And And your point earlier about Germany trying to do this at uh, 25 per million people, I think you said, is is um, is that's that's partly a function of the reduction in caseload, but it is also partly a function in how much testing, uh, effective activities on the ground, tracking and tracing, contact strategy, all these other elements, and it will put a real premium on quality of execution not just on the absolute numbers that we're dealing with right now. Uh, so, okay, so now we, but let's say we do come out of it in a reasonable way, not perfect, I think that's unrealistic, but in a reasonable way, we're able to bring things back up. How do you see the lasting impact on industries, on firms out of this? Um, are, are you on the optimistic, pessimistic side of how fast the, the, the real economy can start to resume, not from a health standpoint. I know that's not what you're going to project, but, but from a sort of an underlying economic standpoint. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, the, the structural legacy question, we already touched on it for the macro angle. Um, you know, can you bounce back to your old growth rates? Can you, can you bounce back to your old growth levels? And, and that is a function of, of, you know, CapEx growth and capital formation. Part of that holds true at the industry level. So if you cascade down to the industry level first, that macro view still holds there. As you go further down to the firm level, the macro legacy becomes a function of consumer behavior. And the question is, does the shock actually change consumer behavior? And if so, does that stick? 
And when it sticks or even grows over time, um, I think this is where you'll see uh, firm level and industry level real legacies, and that could cut both ways. Um, it could be uh, clearly detrimental as, as consumer behavior undermines existing business models, or it could be an opportunity for some where we adopt new behavior, which is also translatable into new business models and opportunities and revenue and growth. And, you know, sort of the, the industries or business models that most often come up now in conversations with clients for the sake of argument is often, aren't we just learning in real time two things? One is um, we, don't, we don't truly need to travel. At least our threshold for casual business travel is likely going to be higher. Are you easily stepping on a plane for a three-hour trip for just a single business meeting? I think that's that's plausibly sticking and that's not going to just jump back uh, to before and the other one is around uh you know the use of office space and business models that that really use commercial real estate uh, to provide workspace when everyone's also learning real time that your home is essentially an underutilized asset like a car that's in the garage most of the year when you leave it in the morning it's 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 you know not productive and really it can be very productive so isn't there a structural legacy for industries like that on the downside. Um, and then I think on the upside, in the same way, we're learning a lot of things, particularly around education. Um, I see it with my own kids of how quickly schools stepped up uh, in shifting to online delivery and, and making that good and demonstrating to us how good the technology already was. And my expectation will be that post-crisis, some of that sticks and even grows. And when it, when it returns year after year, it becomes a growth thing. It becomes a structural legacy of that. And so, um, you know, industry by industry, we could go through that and see who's a winner and who's a loser. And I think that's a very fascinating conversation that's unfolding. So I just want to close because you've been talking to so many clients all around the world about this. What's the most unexpected or thought provoking sort of uh, dialogue you've had with you don't have to name the company or the individual, but like where have you found people coming out from very interesting angle that you didn't expect or things that you're learning you didn't expect to coming out of the large numbers of engagements you're having? Yeah, you know, I think the, the most challenging or surprising or, or you know, um, conversations that leave an impression on me are those parts of the economy that are systemically exposed to this. So a lot of them have, an, have a single angle of this uh, problem, and some of them have it across the board. So clearly in the, in the financial world, you have sort of a broader all across the dimension exposure and then um, the question of uniqueness of shock. I mean, policymakers never had to deal with a full-blown, uh, all-encompassing liquidity problem across the whole real economy of a given of a given nation. That is something. Uh, thinking through that, and some some clients have to do that much more sy uh, systematically than others. And thinking through that true historical novelty, which quite simply has never existed. We've dealt with financial system shock, so there's a big learning curve, particularly over the last 15 years since, since the global financial crisis. But this is new territory of how do you deliver that? How do you deliver the liquidity that is needed across the real economy? And so I'd say it's the financial system world that, that has to think through that, banks, asset managers. And then on the other side, it's, it's public sector players, governments, who are in the middle of having to deliver that in a very broad and very you know, granular and hopefully impactful way. And, and that is a much broader experience of the problem 
than any one company that has a slice of the problem that isn't that isn't as broadly exposed. So I think those conversations are particularly interesting for me and, and uh, systemically very relevant in how these clients are affected. Philip, thank you so much for sharing these perspectives. We're living in such a dynamic time. And I know that um, economists often get teased for not being able to give specific answers to hard macroeconomic questions. So that tradition goes back decades. But I think in the times we live in, we all totally understand that actually nobody can give those kinds of specific answers. Still, it's useful to have your perspective and frankly, some comfort that at least the very extreme scenarios that we sometimes read or hear about are are still unlikely, even though the damage of this is in many places around the world is still going to be quite severe. Uh, it'll be valuable to keep in touch and maybe do another one of these down the road. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Rich. Bye-bye.